Welcome, learners and learn it alike, to help teach. Hello, and welcome to our community audio project. I'm your host, editor, producer, and project co lead, Mihai Kovasser. I'm also a youth living with a physical disability. My most formative experiences living with a disability have come in the Canadian public education system. Many students like me with physical, emotional, or mental challenges go through their years of schooling lacking the supports and accommodations they need to partake of the same opportunities offered to their peers. The vision of this project is to provide educators in Canadian classrooms, students with disabilities, and members of the general public with the tools and knowledge that they need to make our institutions more accessible and inclusive for all. Join me and a diverse cast of guests as we explore perspectives on disabilities in education in this podcast series. One last message for you teachers tuning in. Listen in each episode for our key takeaway that you can implement in your classroom today to help us further this vision. Welcome back, everyone, loyal listeners, after a unexpected break to help teach. Thank you so much for your patience. It's been a tough couple of months here in the Okanagan. We've had some emergencies in the area and the start of school and all. So it's been uh, a little bit tough to keep on track. But here we are back again and back with a good friend of mine who I'm very excited to invite to the show. Today, I'm going to have the opportunity to speak a little bit about the intersection between public and alternative education and what teachers can do to push their students to their best potential with a bit of a different model, perhaps. So before we get into all of that, I'm very excited to welcome to the show, Aaron Wang. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hi, Mihai. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this. So for a bit of context, I think Aaron will maybe talk a little bit about this in his introduction, but I know Aaron from another project that we do called the Canadian Philosophy Show. A little bit of a plug there. Uh, I will put that sort of unorthodox link in our uh, show notes here, but we run that project together. Aaron is doing a great job with that. No stranger to the mic, and I'm really happy to have you on. So as I begin with all my guests, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I recently turned uh, 26 years old. I graduated last year from Vancouver Island University with a double minor in mathematics and computer science. My current profession is working as an uh, educational assistant. So in my job, mainly what I do is support a diverse range of students, mainly with uh, higher level math, and I do a little bit of physics as well. So yeah, and I'm, I'm based out of Nanaimo, BC. Aaron, I know you and I were talking about this before our recording here, but you've had a bit of a unique experience yourself with education, some roundabouts and some different ways of getting where you are. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? What has your sort of personal education journey looked like to get you where you are? Yeah, so I was actually uh, homeschooled for 11 years. I was homeschooled from grade one to grade 11. It wasn't necessarily the plan that my parents were planning on doing. It was just kind of the the reaction to I was attending a private school in, in the city of Calgary. And 
that educational experience just wasn't working very well. Uh, my parents noticed that I struggled a lot with transitioning between different activities. It didn't seem that I had a good fit with my teachers. There were a lot of phone calls and experiences like that. And so uh, that basically led to me being homeschooled for 11 years. And then I spent one year uh, taking grade 12 courses. Fortunately for me, I come from pretty privileged background. My dad is a engineer, and so he was able to help me with a lot of math on the personal level. And my mom's family has a history of teaching in her family. So she was able to help me with the structuring of my education. She worked very, very hard reading lots of books. And yeah, I'm just, I'm very proud of my parents and all of the work and investment in yeah. my education and personalizing my education. No, absolutely. That's that's a lot of effort. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later today in the discussion, what what that means. And, you know, we know that's not always a feasible option for many parents for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is, of course, affordability, both in terms of the system and in terms of being able to take time away from working to be able to set something like that up. Um, but anyways, I, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. So all that, you, you went through those 11 years of uh, homeschooling, and then you did your your grade twelve. What happened after that to sort of get you into special education? Because I know that you were saying that's not necessarily where you expected to end up. Yeah, it was more or less an accident. Um, <laughs> so, as as most people who are very good in math and science, they all tell us to to go into engineering to give that a try. Um, basically, doesn't work out for fifty percent of us. But it was- <laughs> It was a good experience. I made it longer than, I guess, the average, so to speak. There's there's a big cutoff after first year, so I made it into second year engineering. But I was just not very happy with the program that I was taking. Engineering just didn't seem to be precisely what I thought it was going to be, and I wasn't mm-hmm. prepared for that. So, yeah, and then while I was in Edmonton at that time, I, I had two jobs working as a children's supervisor for summer camps for low-income families with an organization called Kids on Track. So they, they were just an absolutely amazing mm. organization. It's hard to explain how much I learned from them, and I mm. credit them with all of my success in working <laughs> in education. Yeah, so just a, a really amazing organization to work with and to be inspired by. And then the next summer, I, I worked for an organization uh, based out of the University of Alberta called Discover E, which helps uh, encourage kids to go into STEM careers. So that was where I started, was kind of being a summer camp instructor, trying to inspire kids to have fun and then to have fun learning math and science. Mm-hmm, and for sure. Kind of experience naturally transitioned into me applying for educational assistant roles within special education. I see. I want to ask you here, in all of that experience for you, you mentioned to me a couple of takeaways of yours that you think really highlight effective education or underpin effective education, especially at a young age like that. And I thought there were really powerful uh, aspects that you shared. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this mainly comes from my observations just dealing with like conflict management as a, as a summer camp instructor and then as an educational assistant. 
And a lot of what I've noticed is for kids to be successful, successfully learning and to be, or, and also to be successfully communicating, which I think is a really important part of learning, they have to feel safe uh, and they have to feel comfortable. They have to be willing to just know that it's okay to be themselves and then to explore things and ask questions and, and ask for help. And I know that sounds like really basic, but it's actually really hard. <laughs> if you think yeah. about your own experience, I think everyone can understand that asking for help, especially if it's something that other people don't normally have to ask for help for, it can be really hard. Yeah. And in special education, a lot of the time we just kind of have to step back and just say like, it's okay. Like it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to need something different than what you might think an ordinary person might need. Everyone is a unique person and having those adaptions so that different diverse peoples can succeed in school and educational settings is, I would say, very important. And I guess one of the reasons I'm so passionate about that is just because right. of my background and yeah. I, I know that I never probably would have succeeded and gone to university had it not been for the investment of my parents. Right, right. And there's another thing you said, which I'll, I'll just touch on lightly before we move into the second part of our discussion here. But you mentioned about teaching students, as you said, that there's no shame, not just in asking for help, but also in being high achievers or sitting outside the norm mm -hmm. academically, uh, especially when it comes to high achievement, which I, I'm really interested to ask you about. Just before we get to that, though, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Help Teach. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back. Welcome back to Help Teach, where today I have the pleasure to be talking to Aaron Wang, colleague of mine and educational assistant. And we just touched on this subject of your two takeaways from for, I should say, effective education, the first of helping students to feel safe and comfortable, and the second about encouraging them to aim high and to sit comfortably in their niche in education, even if that sits outside the norm. If you want to elaborate on that, please go ahead. I also want to sort of tie that to shortcomings that you may have discovered in your research or and personal experience even regarding public education. I think they're sort of meshed together. So uh, I, I wanted to let you touch on that. Yeah. So my specific educational context, and I want to be careful here about not overgeneralizing because I think that's just a real issue in education. Right. It's really easy for people to just be like, oh, you know, this person did this, they were successful, so we should also do this. And really... What I do is, is very specific, and I mm. would would not recommend that you generalize everything I'm saying, especially since I have a background in math. Generalizing <laughs> is something that you know we do as a matter of, of proof in math, so that's not something that you can really do in, in education. It's a lot of <laughs> trial and error. So um, with that disclaimer in mind, the main things that I see is uh, a lack of one-on-one -on -one attention with students. And specifically, the students that I work for, they don't seem to succeed well in a classroom setting, mm. which is usually why they choose an online school. Sure. And, but 
for students specifically, like a lot of the students that I work with, especially the ones that are, are new to online school, they are used to essentially being the, the failure in class, mm. being the one who just never got math or never understood science or never understood physics. And so a lot of my initial problems is just to be saying like, okay, you know, just because you didn't previously succeed at a high level doesn't mean that you will forever be limited in your educational journey. Right. So as long as we can correct those those roadblocks and find a process that works, there's no reason why your potential can't be as high as anyone else's. There's no such thing as a permanent setback. Yeah. On my best days, that's what I get to share with the student. Right, of course. And, you know, you made a, a strong point, speaking of not generalizing and, and maybe not taking things out of context, you made a quite strong and uh, clear point of telling me that, you know, public school is an essential institution, which I think we're all in agreement with. I mean, regardless of what we talk about here on this show about restructuring, about models that may work differently, especially just personal teaching models, uh, the institution itself and, and the benefits that students get in the classroom are invaluable, right? I mean, and, and for students like me, I know in my experience, I could not have survived in a in a homeschool or a, or a private setting like that, because I just I need the social aspect of it. I need to uh, be with peers to learn from peers from teachers. That's just how I learn, right? So I do want to take that opportunity to remind listeners that it's easy to, again, get in that mindset of, oh, here's all the problems and they're so glaring and the system is broken and right. But it does a lot for us, <laughs> too. Yeah, I think that's very important to remember, Mihai. I have nothing but respect for the public education system. I know that there are a lot of people who only see their own experience of negative results, but I think there are so many people who, who go through school and, and have a positive result, especially in, in high school and middle school, and they have those, those few teachers who make those critical life investments. And, and as a society, those are the types of things that I think are, are really invaluable. Yeah. Um, like you can't put a price on teaching someone who, who really wants to do good for society, common good for society, right, yeah. basic skills of, of reading, writing, and math, and enabling them to just better serve everyone in their community. Right. That all is true. I also, of course, recognize that it wasn't without challenges that I went through that system. So I want to ask you now, you know, hearing what you had to say about your experience in a sort of alternative system, of course, your experience with the public system as well, both through your professional development and your grade 12 year, I want to ask you about bridging this gap. So if you have some sort of key elements of your educational experience and the alternative programming that you've participated in, what key elements could we bring into the classroom to improve adaptability and accessibility? Where do you see the strong points of the work that you do and how we can sort of patch some holes, as it were, in the public system for students? Yeah, so there's a recent book that came out by Anna Lorena Fabrega. She is a really excellent 
philosopher of, of education or someone who is discussing the role of education in society and, and really mm. picking that apart. She, she starts out her book, The Learning Game, asking like, well, why do students need to learn six to eight hours a day, five days a week for 12 years of their life? Why does learning need to be set up specifically in that context? Is it because that is the most effective way to set them up for success in life? And she, she challenges that. She says that, you know, a lot, there's a lot of things that we do in education because that's how they've always been done in our countries for a hundred years or so. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that will be the best for the, the changing world that we live in. And so, yeah, the, the Learning Game is is uh, a recent book that I think brings that that point home. Hmm. And another point that she makes in it is essentially that for her, she she succeeded in many schools because she understood the game of school. Hmm. And the game of school was to to listen to your teachers, uh-huh. to do your homework, <laughs> to sit in class quietly. And she also learned that when she did her real learning, it was often when she was exploring her interests outside of the classroom, but that had real payoffs in the classroom. Mm. And this is something I think that high school and university students could really um, learn a lot from is the students who are the highest achieving students are often those not who are doing anything different inside the classroom in terms of paying attention, but they're the students who excel outside of the classroom Mm. in terms of doing exemplary homework, exemplary research, exemplary writing, and and critical thinking. And once you have those skills and continue investing in them, the classroom just becomes even more useful to you. Mm. Well, that is a good point. And we'll touch back on this in a minute as far as resources for teachers, but this will tie back into this discussion about uh, what teachers can do to sort of help push students in that regard. Just before we get to that, I think that comments about doing work outside the classroom and thinking outside the box a little bit, let's say the box being the classroom, quite literally. There's a quote. So in a work that you contributed to uh, titled Growing an Accessible and Inclusive Systems Design Course with Plant UML, you and your co-writers talk about focusing on a broader end goal for accessibility, as well as really listening carefully to identify concerns. And I think the example that was brought up was, so so this particular paper is about assisting students that are vision impaired with a certain digital learning platform. But as opposed to focusing on the problem of being blind or being vision impaired, the student that was the focal point of this paper really sort of took an approach that's like, how can we make this more accessible for everyone and therefore more accessible for me? So I'm wondering if you want to touch a little bit about that and that sort of outside the box thinking aspect that I think you're you're quite fond of. So before I get a little bit deeper into that, I do want to put out a big thank you to my professor, Sarah Cuthers, who was the instructor uh, for the course. The course was named uh, Systems Analysis, and we talk about how to analyze software systems and uh, the design processes that accompany that. There are a lot of uh, systems diagrams that we create in that course, and obviously diagrams are not the most accessible thing to visually impaired students. You could argue there's nothing more uh, <laughs> harder to harder to deal with for visually impaired students than 
a very complex technical diagram course. So my professor talked with my visually impaired classmate, and she was able to figure out that for her, in her context, she had already had a lot of success doing uh, coding for uh, text-based tools. Mm. So this is this is someone who can't see, who is using a screen reader to use text-based programming tools to design uh, websites and create applications, mm. which I think is absolutely uh, fantastic. Yeah, and is you know something that I never would have like even thought was possible had I not had the the privilege of of being uh, her classmate. So when we we were we were doing that. She found this tool uh, called Plant UML, which lets you create a text a description in a programming language, high-level programming language, kind of like Python, that creates that text description of the diagram. So our team would work on the text description of the diagram, and then when we needed to show it to our classmates, we would just use the the program to con convert that to the diagram we needed. Right. And so, what was very unexpected was that the professor in this course didn't force anyone to adopt this tool, but she did require everyone to create a uh, text description of whatever diagram they were working on mm. so that their work be accessible for the visually impaired students so that she could engage with the, the class just like everyone else. So uh, Plant UML, it, rather than writing a text description of the diagram, you could just give the code for it and yeah. use that and access that. Um, so that was one reason for, for user adoption from our classmates. But another was that it was actually far superior as a tool for iterative development of diagrams, mm. which was something that none of us really expected to find out, that there was actually a more effective way right. of doing software diagram than drag and drop interfaces, which were the common practice. And we would never have known that had we not explored uh, more accessible outcomes. And I think the real message of, of hope from, from our paper was that sometimes by exploring more uh, inclusive and accessible outcomes, what we find is something that actually works better for everyone involved, mm. which I think is, is amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's inspiring, truly. I mean, that's what we hope, right? I mean, that's, that's the basis behind universal design, something we've talked a lot about on this show, behind other concepts like that is, it's not just for one person. And in a sense, again, listening to identify concerns from specific people in order to make a, a something a process a class more accessible to them is not the same as being stuck inside a certain parameter or being confined to one way of doing things rather we should as you say look to apply that more broadly and i think that's really interesting that your experience and has taught you that that creative exploration outside of sort of the traditional systems can lead to such useful outcomes and progressive outcomes for everyone involved. So I think that's a really good message to focus on. As we approach uh, the end of our time here together, I just want to turn to something maybe a little bit more practical, uh, not so conceptual, something that teachers can maybe think to read up on and see how they can encourage that kind of critical thinking and that 
achieving of potential and pushing one's boundaries in their students, which is the work of Lev Vygotsky, a name that is quite familiar, I think, to a lot of teachers and a lot of people that go through psychology for his theories around child development, especially this zone of proximal development, as it's called. So in a minute or less, maybe give us the rundown and then I'll put some resources in the episode description for teachers as well. Yeah, so this is this is a theoretical uh, learning idea uh, that I encountered while I was in university, actually, in my computer science and ethics course. Um, and so how it works is the zone of proximal development sits between a, stu- a student's uh, current capacity. So the way the diagram usually works is you have a circle that represents the student's capacity. Then you have a, a, a much larger circle, which represents the teacher's capacity. And then in between them, you have another circle, and that is the, the zone of growth, the zone of proximal development. And that rests in between the, the student and the teacher. And then the question becomes, well, how do you help facilitate the learner to grow their zone of, of competence, essentially? And so that's where uh, Levigotsi's second concept of scaffolding comes in. And so this is creating structures to improve the student's learning above what it would be naturally. Right. And these are these these can be many things. It's a pretty generalizable concept. So many different ways of of making education innovating. And I find that very helpful when uh, thinking about the specific needs of students is how can I create scaffolding that helps structure their learning, knowing where they are and where they need to go. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's really a clear way to put it. And so that's where we will end with this episode with our key takeaway for teachers to look into this. Like I said, I'll provide a few resources, some interesting readings in the episode description and consider the potential. Even if you take nothing else from this episode, I would say just having that in mind of this incredible potential for growth that we have as students and as classroom teams to to push ourselves to really the outer bounds of our potential just by looking at things from a different perspective or pushing each other to really excel and succeed, which I think is essential. And I mean, that's how I operate. And I think uh, a lot of people will take some really great information from that. I want to thank you very much, Aaron, for coming on the show today. Thank you for coming to chat with me. Uh, I'm sure I'll see you very soon on our other project and maybe on this one again, too. But uh, yeah, thank you again. I think people will really be interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Just before I go, I'll, I do want to make a quick uh, couple of shout outs. The first one is a, a really wonderful uh, community, which I really hope that you get connected to soon, Mihai, called uh, Hope Brain Trust. It's a really amazing community of people who want to create the very best quality education for the sake of the, the students. And of course, our, our other project, the Canadian Philosophy Show, our, our vision statement that we're crafting basically goes that we want to uh, encourage philosophical dialogue for the uh, improvement of Canadian society. So if that's a vision you can get on board with and you'd like to help us with, then feel free to listen to our show and send us any feedback you have. All right. Thank you very much, Aaron. Hope to talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Mihai. You've just heard another episode of the Community Audio Project Help Teach. I'd like to give a huge thank you to my other co-leads on this project, Peyton Given, Maggie Manning, Elise Doucette, and Alexis Holmgren. 
all youth leaders at the Rick Hansen Foundation, who I'd also like to thank for their continued support in this initiative and others. My name is Mihai Kovacer. I am your host, editor, and producer for this podcast series. Thank you to every Canadian Counts and their hashtag Rising Youth Initiative for funding this project and for allowing us to put out our vision for change into the community. You can find all transcripts, episode notes, and links to other resources on our base site, helpteach.transistor.fm, or listen to us wherever you find your podcasts. If you have any questions about the show or would like to get involved, now get in touch at helpteachpodcast at gmail.com. That's helpteachpodcast at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more great conversations and key takeaways that you educators can implement in the classroom today to make it a more accessible and inclusive place for all. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.